Why do you want to fight? This is the fight game with Demond Cotton. Hello and welcome to the fight game with Demond Cotton on 1230 The Game. We've got a great show for you today. Heidi Fang is joining us on the show today. And I mean, it's going to be so great to have Heidi. Heidi's already in studio. You know, I can't all before I give her the accomplishments, <laughs> all the accomplishments that she does, everything that she does in the fight game. Before we even get there, I'll give you a little rundown. No Jared in today. Jared's taking the day off feeling a little sick. Hey, man, maybe it's going around. I had to take last week off myself, but we're back. And because we had to take last week off, we got to give you a recap of everything that we missed including UFC 274, including Canelo losing the fight. If you remember in my preview, I was talking to Sam Gordon. I was just like, ah, man, Canelo, who knows? He's just got another cupcake, and he's just going to walk, and we're setting up for that Triple G, Triple G rematch. But whoa! <laughs> but whoa! I mean, out of nowhere, didn't see it coming. 19-0. and 0. You just don't see it coming, and that's why you never know what to expect in the fight game because any thing can happen all right and i already said it before heidi fang joining me today on the show so let's go ahead and get into it let's get it on yeah <laughs> i'm so pumped Damon. let's go Heidi. i'm happy to be here man thank you so much this is one of this is my first in-studio guest i mean like we're uh -huh. here yeah <laughs> every fighter that i've had on has just been a phone interview but this is uh. the first in-studio guest let's go i'm pumped and i mentioned canelo losing yeah to dimitri bivol yeah you were there in attendance, T-Mobile Arena. How was it? It was intense. It always is on Cinco de Mayo anytime you have uh, a big fight. And it definitely had that big fight feel from the weigh-in that happened in Toshiba Plaza, the press conference in the week, and everything else that went down the row as you expect to have happen with the fight week from their rivals and all of that. It had that big fight feel. And Canelo gets in there, closes as a 5-1 to favorite right before the fight. That was told to me by um, one of the promoters working the show. And then you're expecting a couple rounds probably to Bivol because he's, you know, Canelo gives a little way early on. He's not the fastest starter. A slow starter. Mm -hmm. A very slow starter. Yeah. So you're expecting that. And you see a couple rounds go and you're like, okay, well, you know. I think I had a 3-1 off the top four. And it was a debatable in the first round for me to go – Canelo on that one. It, it, that, that was a round that I think could have gone either way in the first. And then you keep going and going, and all of a sudden, Bivol's completely taking over. The pressure that he had with the jab was amazing. The way that he was able to work in and get Canelo off of his footing and to con just continually push after him, the size differential was huge when you think about uh, the, the speed that Bivol naturally had. At, at that weight class and then how slow Canelo looked at it. Was that 175? Because I know Canelo, he's made this jump before, but was this the first time where maybe, this isn't Sergey Kovalev, this isn't uh, someone that's a little long in the yeah. tooth, his best days are behind him. So was it just that natural weight? Because I think Bavol, I think his actual just, his walking around weight is around 185. Like that, that 175 cut for him was not that big of a deal. So he's still fresh and he's also got the height advantage being six foot. Because Canelo, one of the things that I've always been worried about with him trying to make his climb, there was even talk that before the fight, Canelo may want to jump up to heavyweight. But he's a solid 5'8. 
Let's call right. it what it is. So when you're, <laughs> and you know, I'm a short king myself. But when you try to jump up in that weight class, do you think that he bit off too much? He bit off more than he could chew, and it finally caught up to him trying to jump up. Well, yeah, I think that's always a good thing for any fighter to want to challenge themselves at different weight classes and going from you know super middleweight, welterweight, um, and now wanting to get after it at light heavyweight. It it was something that you have to rise to if you want to keep your name and your legacy in the in this world of combat sports as one of the best. That's what everybody does, right? From Manny to Floyd, to all the guys that have had multiple belts in their uh, different divisions and, and carried on that legacy it's something I think Canelo felt like he needed to ascend to but did he bite off more than he can chew at light heavyweight it's uh against Bivol yeah it's uh, every fighter has their kryptonite I'm not saying that the the fight is the only way it could have gone obviously that Canelo you know as a five to one favorite should have lost in that way because the scorecards first of all that's something else I wanted to get at the scorecards when you looked at it almost seemed to lean towards Canelo's favor when the numbers were read I was thinking my god I thought Bivol won a lot more of the rounds than that and and then you hear the scorecards and you're like oh they had it a lot closer so that's the thing I think a lot of people I've been seeing analysts and such are worried about in a rematch if it should happen is that the, the scorecards might start to sway towards uh canelo's way a little more if it, the the fight is close so uh if i had to say it though just from what my eye caught i would think bivol could take that fight in a rematch again just the size the pressure the speed the jab the way he used his length uh canelo seemed outmatched and i, I don't think it was a good fight for him and I hate to do this when a fighter comes off of one of their most impressive wins of their career, but Canelo is the main story here. And you mentioned something before when you mentioned the legacy, mm -hmm. because fighters, it's always moving up in weight class, trying to conquer different divisions. When I had Shakur Stevenson on, he was already talking about his legacy and be wanting to be pound for pound number one. And then, you know, pay-per-view buys, how that factors into legacy. All these different things that a lot of boxers that they already think about in the present about establishing their legacy. What does this do to Canelo's legacy in your eyes? Well, I don't I don't think it really stains it, but it is something that people will talk about when they start to speak about where he lands and the top pound-per-pound -pound fighters of all time. You think about the, the people who have ascended and maintained their legacy. It's like I said, the guys that have won over multiple weight classes. Now, because Canelo already has done that in various ones you figure okay this is a, a hiccup you know and maybe he can rebound from it and maybe he'll prepare differently and maybe he'll try to put on like you were talking about with the the weight cut sometimes it's a matter of developing enough muscle to compete at that weight class where you're not just cutting away like um, bloating type weight, you know, when you're when you're weight cutting and your water and everything's coming out. And then a lot of fighters like Bivol will put on 15 pounds before they even step back in the ring after they've made the weight. Yeah. In the MMA world, we've seen this with John Jones, where he still hasn't had a fight with the UFC because I think the relationship with Dana White. But besides the point is that the jump up to heavyweight. We all know that John Jones, he walks around heavier than 205, mm -hmm. but for him to try to make that jump to heavyweight, it was it took a full year process yep. for him to get that body the way that he wanted to, to just walk around and feel comfortable at heavyweight and not just, hey, I can eat enough food to get to that weight 
and, yeah. and feel comfortable. There's exactly. a difference between fighting at a different weight class and just making the weight for the fight class. Exactly. So now I feel like now that Canelo knows that and knows what his body feels like at that weight and how he was able to move and he did seem a beat slower you know but as far as his legacy does it tarnish it for me not at all I think it was a, a bad fight for him I don't think that it panned out the way did I pick Bivol to win it no absolutely not <laughs> but now that you've seen what happened in that fight you know that he was a step behind that he was a little bit slower that his counter game wasn't on where it was but I mean granted when Canelo was hitting earlier on you could hear that you could hear it cracking and that was something that, that it fell upon my ears like, wow, OK, this one may have the pressure and the speed, but Canelo still has that power. And if he can put on muscle at that weight class and build it the proper way and, and come up again and know now that his body, this is what it felt like. This is how I was sluggish. This is where I need to try to build upon that, I think, can really take him farther in a rematch if he focuses on that. Yeah, you mentioned the rematch. What do you as a fan want to see? Do you want to see a rematch with Bivol, or do you want to see the Triple G trilogy? Because that one was already in the works. That, that was going to be the next fight after this fight. And I'll be honest, I'll just say it. I, want, I still want to see Triple G because I do think that Triple G won the first fight. Mm. I'll give Canelo the second. So in my mind, this is the tiebreaker. As long as Adelaide Bird isn't there. <laughs> I'll, I'll be in on it as long as Adelaide Bird isn't there the, the scorecard still yeah the judges it's so funny because Devin Haney how he's going mm -hmm. to Australia to fight George Cambosis and it's just all right you go you got to go to Australia I talked to Devin Haney about this but one of the things that he had in the contract for the fight I want fair judges and that's just so yeah. funny that in boxing that you have to put that in the stipulation of <laughs> hey man I want some fair judges Right. I'm looking forward to that Devin Haney fight, by the way. We were able, Sam Gordon and I went down to the uh, top ranked gym, spoke with him. I'll have that coming out in a week. Uh, I got to watch how he's working. He looks pretty good, looks pretty sharp. But going to Australia, man, the acclimation of going in to a whole other country and, and getting your clock right, that kind of stuff. I always, I, I, I haven't been in a situation as even. Um, a reporter <laughs> going into Australia and knowing what kind of effect that has on your body. I mean, the farthest I've been is South America, but it, it still it takes you at least a day and a half, two days to acclimate. So, well, today it's May nineteenth, and I, I think he's he's leaving out today for a June fourth fight. So he's already trying good. to he's already trying to get ahead of it because last week, as we transitioned over to the UFC, I was talking to Justin Gaethje, and one of the fights that he had in Khabib in Abu Dhabi where I just had to ask him, like, hey, so what's the difference between, obviously, this championship fight and your last? Mm -hmm. And mainly one of the things that he said is the time difference. I don't have to worry about my clock being wrong, about, hey, I'm, I'm focused on am I getting enough sleep or I don't even know what time zone I'm in. And I do think that that is going to weigh on Devin Haney just a little bit, right. but I still got him winning the fight. But as it inches closer, I, I, I want to break that down with you as well because Devin Haney, he's going 135 and he's trying to be that undisputed champion. And like you said, when I talk to him, legacy, it's so important to these guys. And to be so young, 23 years old, and already thinking about your legacy is incredible to me. Yeah, well, that's what you have to do in the short window that you have as a professional athlete. Like, if you, some of these fighters, it's rare that you see a guy like Gaethje, for instance, you brought him up, who's been in the fight game as long as he has, at 33 years old, still fighting at a high level. And I think now that 
When I was covering the sport back, you know, earlier, early 2000s, a lot of people didn't have that idea how to properly condition and the weight cutting was like hey let's get into a sweatsuit and wrap up and that kind of stuff which a lot of people still do but it was it is a lot harsher on the body than now how they have the proper nutrition and that they can keep their weight at a certain amount and and maintain that with all the different you know things that you can do for recovery like aminos or what have you that maybe wasn't so thought of in the forefront of your mind in the earlier days, it was a little bit more savage. But now, do you remember that early season? It was, I think, it was one of the first seasons of The Ultimate Fighter, and the guy they just have him locked in the suit, and then I think it was Chuck Liddell. Sam Hoger. I don't was know, but I, I think Chuck Liddell was his coach, uh-huh. and then the guy they're looking at him like he's oh, weak. Was it Be- Bobby Southworth? I believe so because yeah. like when he just couldn't, he couldn't take yeah. being in the sauna yeah, for so long, it. mm-hmm. and it's just the fact that that's what fifteen years ago maybe mm-hmm. that you're looking, but you're looking, you're being looked at as weak. Because you can't put your body through an extreme cut, yeah, of just wow. Because like I said, when I talked to Gaethje, he said he's got a new, he's got a chef now, and the chef comes in weeks before the fight in advance to get his body right. He just the chef gives him the food, and he just knows that that's what he needs to eat to right. be ready for fight week. But yep. speaking of UFC 274, Justin Gaethje, Charles Oliveira. Speaking of weight, missed weight, stripped of the lightweight title in the UFC by half a pound. I know it's just half a pound rules or rules, but come on, UFC. It's like we were just saying, once a guy is fully depleted and there's nothing left to give, that's where I felt Oliveira was at. I don't think it was a matter of, oh, he went out and ate tiramisu the night before. We heard that story before. I I don't (laughs) think it was a case like that. I feel like it was really that he tried. And this is another thing that Dana brought up, man versus scale, where you have the the scale set in kilograms for one way in, and then you switch it to pounds. And the, the, the calibration, they were debating whether or not that it could have been affected by the switching. But I think they later tested the scale and the scale was fine. So I guess it's, you know, truly a matter of uh, and, and this has been a problem with Oliveira and you know, speaking of the ultimate fighter, going back to when he was there, how much he had an issue with making weight. But granted, that was when he was competing a featherweight. But still, as your body ages, you start to get more into um, a, a tougher zone of, of trying to cut that weight. It's not as easy as it might have been. He's 22, 23 years old as it is now. But uh, again, that was like really something that's unprecedented that doesn't often happen where you're stripped uh, the day before a fight and if you win which he did you don't get to take home the belt it's not considered a defense it's wild but in in your eyes is he still the lightweight title yep. is he he's still the lightweight champion in my head yeah to me as well that was a title fight mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes mm-hmm. he goes out he beats Justin Gaethje and now the question is what's going to be next for Charles Oliveira because we got Islam. Islam's chomping at the bit. And I just, I don't know who would win that fight. But for me in my head, you know, I got the pro wrestling background. <laughs> if I'm booking the territory, here's what I'm saying. Charles Oliveira and Islam. And he beats Islam, let's say in a decidingly fashion. Oh, my God, Charles Oliveira, do Bronx. He's got the title once again. And then Dana White's got to make the call. Call in the big dog. Khabib. Oh. Well, Khabib's out promoting fights now at Eagle Eagle FC. It, I, I've seen him going out there and and doing like the whole Dana White in between the stare down thing. <laughs> oh yeah, he's got Junior wonder. Dos Santos. Yeah, he's already saying yeah. if Junior Dos Santos wins his next fight in Eagle, he wants to try to get Fado over <laughs> from Bellator. Yeah, he he is 
He is promoter. He is being a promoter for sure. Yeah, and he's got the followers for it. People love uh, following everything that he does and keeping up with him and, and trying to see if he would ever consider coming back because when he left, you know, still undefeated, top of his game kind of stuff, and it's just people want to see some fights still involving him. But, hey, um, if we see Islam Oliveira, that, that could be interesting. I like the way that you took that angle. But how, how do you promote it um you have Oliveira go face and then he heel turns oh no he's still the face but it's just the <laughs> he's the face you know he's the white me baby face people are loving this guy i mean the, the way the way he's like got jujitsu out oh, there where man. people are just like oh man did you see that transition it's how beautiful. he got into the rear naked choke the way he pulled him down in the guard and it's not the fact that he he can stand, he can trade, he can take a punch, mm-hmm. has a solid chin. But I do think that he's making people become more fans of just his grappling ability. Yeah. So he's a face, but Khabib. Okay. I mean, I think that that fight, it would be <laughs> incredible because you have the jujitsu grappling over someone who's just, my wrestling is top notch. My wrestling is out of this world. Habibi's even said, hey, he's good, but he's not me. Mm. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the thing. Nobody wrestles like Habib did and it's when you think about the videos I always think about it when he's out wrestling bears literally (laughs) wrestling bears you cannot anybody else in the UFC cannot come in and step up and said I wrestled a bear in one and lived to tell about it that that is something Uh, you know what? what puts him on a different plateau Enough of it. He wrestled. I'm sure that he bear. Did. I'm not saying the bear was in on it, <laughs> but I know that they, they smartened the bear up before. Like, hey, don't they? We're just, we're just, you know, we just want to film this so we can look tough. Don't actually hurt him. It was because he had wrestled it already, uh, probably when he was five years old and took its will from it. Yeah, I know. He probably declawed it when he first wrestled it at five years old. Him and the bear, they, the bear was in on it. It was a work, as we would say in wrestling. The bear knew. You know, he's like, all right, I'll make him look good. What do you got? You guys want me to make the kid look good? I'll shine him up a little bit. Gnaw at him just a little. Uh, just a little bit, guys. Enough of, oh, Habib wrestled a bear. It's his pet bear. He takes it with him. He maybe sedated it before they shot the video, like you said. A, a work, right? Yeah, it's a work. Come on. he's He wrestled a bear. People always bring up the bear video. And I'm like, enough. You got to think about it. The man goes, he's crazy enough to wrestle a bear that, you know, he can handle anything else that comes his way. You know what? Give me a bear. You know, okay. I could go. All right. I'm going to find you I'm a bear. sure it was like a child bear. I'm sure, you know, in the adolescent stage <laughs> of bearness. Do we need to not wrestle adolescent bears, though? I mean, like, if we're trying to preserve the wildlife and things like that, should I get you an adult bear? Would it be a more fair competition? See, that's <laughs> the thing. It wasn't a wild bear, you know. If I went out, if you give me a bear right now with my limited amateur wrestling experience. Oh, man. Maybe 30 seconds. Maybe I'm, I'm not saying a full round. Okay. I give it 30. 30 seconds. If mm-hmm. I take the bears back, I don't know. See? I give it 30. Okay. That's what separates us from the animals. You know, we got thumbs. Opposable thumbs. I can grab a branch mm-hmm. with my hands. You, yeah. <laughs> so we really derailed here. And now I'm trying I'm to. Sorry, I'm taking this it on. This is what I no, do. Sometimes. No, but I love this because okay. now I'm just. Oh, Habib's not so tough. Now I'm working my way into Oliveira's camp because I was thinking, oh, this would be a great fight. But I still think Habib would beat Oliveira. But now I'm like, no, 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 no. Forget him. Forget the bear. Oliveira's on a 10-fight win streak. He's cracked the code. He's he's the jiu-jitsu king. 
you cannot deny the wins that he's put together in a row. I mean, from anaconda chokes to, I mean, I think he's only had one decision in a 10-win stretch or so. I can't, I can't, I'm trying to think of everything he's had. Is it five, six, seven? I think he's had 11 wins in a row, including some of the top guys in the UFC lightweight division, which is a shark tank. It's an absolute shark tank. The toughest tank. division in the UFC. Yeah. And you look at what he's been able to accomplish in it from taking out Tony Ferguson, Michael Chandler, Justin Gaethje, Kevin Lee even at the time when Kevin Lee was, um, I think, on a pretty decent streak when they had uh, fought each other in that main event. And it's just watching him grow as a fighter has really been amazing to me because when I think back to his earlier days when he was in you know featherweight and, and then he struggled a little bit there, I thought, well, this is a guy that has so much potential, but can he break through? And he was facing the likes of Frankie Edgar, Cub Swanson, and, and struggling, and he took a couple of losses there, but then he got back in it. And and started putting together some wins and starting to prove who he was. And it, it was, I think, one of the best moves ever for him to decidedly go up to lightweight and start making his run there. And it, I just don't think he was, I think the thought of him being at featherweight was good because he is a larger guy physically statured and with the jujitsu that he had. But at the time, it was not working out for him. So the move to lightweight I mean has put together for him what's now the third longest streak in UFC history with the amount of wins that he's had and that is really something that is should be applauded that he has been able to accomplish all right again we're talking to Heidi Fang from the Las Vegas Review Journal and I got a couple more for you before I get yeah. you out of here we mentioned some a few fighters that Oliveira's defeated Michael Chandler mm-hmm. Tony Ferguson that fight at 274 <laughs> Maybe the knockout of the year already in the middle of May. Michael Chandler, a front kick from heaven, takes out Tony Ferguson. And I do think that, wow, Michael Chandler, he is an entertaining fighter, but I don't think he's ready for another title shot next. So do you want to see him take Connor in his next fight? Ooh, that's a good question because Connor coming back from that leg break, I know he think I think he wants to fight Kamaru Usman and he's been getting up in weight. Like he has been building mass. A crazy. He's trying to look like you, Damon. He's trying to put like, but what are you benching now? Five hundred? Oh I'm no! Just I mean, come on. Still, still in, still in that three. All right. Still in that three hundred range. Right. So yeah, Connor is benching then like three twenty. If you're benching three hundred, so Connor right now is looking really like he is building mass, putting it on, looking like he's trying to carry heavier weight to move up to Walter. That's what I think he is trying to do. That's what he's been talking about. We'll see if he goes back to lightweight because as much as I think the idea of Connor getting another belt in another weight class could be interesting, though I don't want to give him another title shot right off the top. I think that's been a problem with me when you look at a guy's record and the the struggles that he's had and the losses that he's had and just going, yeah, we'll give him a title shot at Walter Waite because his name has a lot of recognition. That for me has been an a, a real difficult thing to grasp. I want to see people that have earned that right to fight for that belt. But that being said, I think it would be really 
sick to see Chandler and Conor McGregor get in a cage together. I'd Man, to I didn't that. think about the fact that he's trying to amass all this weight that he's probably just going to have to fight at 170 by default because mm. that's going to be his weight class now because he's gotten so big. But Dustin Poirier, he's also moving up to 170. Yeah. And then they're saying Kobe Covington yeah. and the diamond. Yeah. Maybe just give him the winner of that. I feel like there's there's a circuit that the MMA, they just needs to, I mean, the UFC needs to tap into this market. The you're good enough, but you're not in title contention anymore. Just get like those couple of fighters. You've got Nate Diaz, Poirier, oh, Kobe Covington, Connor. Let's just let those guys just fight in almost like a Grand Prix style. Yes, Grand Prix. I love that. Like Strike Force used to do. Exactly. You know, pride. Yeah. Uh, so, what you could do is I got this idea just invent Let's a weight it. class in between 155, 170, where it's called the open weight, and just let these guys all make build their own super fights together so that, you know, if one's maybe too small to come up all the way to 170, and they're just like we were talking about Canelo, like kind of bloating on the weight and then just cutting it, you know, not gaining it right. But and then you have 170 guys that have a hard time cutting down to 55. So put it somewhere in the middle, you know, let them make their catch weights and just call it like the open BMF championship and then just let them fight. Exactly. Because it'd be the guys that's just <laughs> just like cash cows. You know, you got the Jorge Masvidal's, Kobe right. Covington, Connor, yeah. you know, just the hey, you're a bankable star, but you're not title material anymore. Right. So just let them open weight BMF title belt and, and just go from there. I mean, that belt does exist. Yeah, I mean. The what Rock, are we doing with it? The Rock christened it, I think. Right. <laughs> All right, Heidi, thank you so much for joining me on the fight game. We got to do this again sometime because this has been a where's the time gone interview. We've just been uh, shooting oh, wow. the breeze. Oh, wow. I, to- I could talk about fights all day. Let's go. All right. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> all right. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. All right, and when we come back, we're going to transition to a little WWE. This is the fight game on 1230 The Game. Welcome back to the fight game. And we're back here on the fight game on 1230 The Game. Heidi Fang was amazing. Oh, man, could talk to her forever. Talking about fights galore, UFC, boxing, you name it. Because Heidi knows it all. But now we're going to jump over into the world of the WWE because one of the biggest stories in the WWE in this past week, Sasha Banks, Naomi, the WWE Women's Tag Team Champions, left Monday Night Raw due to an issue with booking. And this was one of those stories where you read it and you just can't believe it that, hold on, let me get this straight. The tag team champs, leave just out of nowhere on an episode of Raw because they didn't like the booking. And you knew it was real because you think, hey, is this a work? Maybe this is an angle. WWE set something up. WWE released an official statement and people had to go back. WWE doesn't usually do this. Are they throwing them under the bus? They haven't done this since 2002 with Stone Cold Steve Austin when he didn't want to lose to Brock Lesnar and they had to put out the statement about Stone Cold. And I think it has something to do with WWE. They don't want to look silly to the live audience if you promise the live audience something wwe wants to deliver and i'll read some of that statement here that wwe released monday before monday night raw was even off the air wwe fired back at sasha banks and naomi leaving the arena per wwe when sasha banks and naomi arrived at the arena this afternoon they were informed of their participation in the main event 
of tonight's Monday Night Raw. During the broadcast, they walked into WWE Head of Talent Relations John Laurinaitis' office with their suitcases in hand, placed their tag team championship belts on his desk, and walked out. They claimed they weren't respected enough as tag team champions, and even though they had eight hours to rehearse and construct their match, they claimed they were uncomfortable in the ring with two of their opponents, even though they had matches with those individuals in the past with no consequence. Monday Night Raw is a scripted live TV show whose characters are expected to perform the requirements of their contract. We regret we were unable to deliver as advertised tonight's main event. And first off, WWE giving the great statement, you know, towing the line, kind of throwing their talent under the bus. But come on, try to keep kayfabe alive just a little bit. Monday Night Raw is a scripted live TV show. It's still real to some of us. But the bigger issue here is that WWE, how are they treating their talent to where you have two of your top bankable stars on the women's division that they are so upset with their booking that they decide to just leave? You know, and there's three sides to the truth. You know, we, we all know that saying with divorce, you know, his story, her story, and the actual truth. But I just don't think that Sasha Banks and Naomi, two tenured WWE veterans, champions at that, would just leave because they didn't like the decision of maybe someone who has to eat the pin or maybe not wanting a loss. I do think that this is built up frustration. And one thing that I've been hearing so much is that, hey, WWE can't afford to lose these two or Sasha Banks could go Hollywood. And one of those things is just that I don't think that WWE, WWE can afford to lose anyone just about besides Roman Reigns at this point, maybe Cody Rhodes. That crossover appeal that people think that Sasha Banks have, I'm not buying it. But I do think that it is hilarious that just, just to be, how mad do you have to be to just leave your job? Just leave the job the day of, walk out on a job. I'm not in favor of just leaving a job, but the frustration has to be high. And people say Sasha Banks, she has that Hollywood appeal that maybe she could go Hollywood. She's had the chance to be on The Mandalorian. She did a couple of guest spots there. Hollywood's calling. Just back it up a little bit. There have only been three bankable stars in the history of WWE who have left and have had the Hollywood money train continuously. John Cena, The Rock, Dave Batista. Everyone else has dabbled a little bit. Stone Cold, a little bit, still has that national commercial with Tide going. Hulk Hogan, couldn't really cut it. So it's one of those things that we always say it. But it's just, it's not set in stone that just because you have a cup of coffee on a couple of Disney shows, I get it, it is Star Wars. But I still think that Sasha Banks needs the WWE. I don't know how they're going to mend this situation. I don't know if her and Naomi are gone for good. I don't think that they're going to pop up in AEW anytime soon. And moving on, we got so much going on on Monday Night Raw. Or Matt Riddle, I think Matt Riddle is being positioned to be the next guy that maybe can defeat Roman Reigns as he beat Jey Uso in the ring. The Bloodline, RK Bro, last Friday, Matt Riddle closes out the show with a need of Roman Reigns. Getting a good taste on the big dog, you know, giving him the need to close out Friday Night SmackDown, defeating one half of the SmackDown Tag Team Championships champions on Monday Night Raw. This has been some interesting stuff here with RK Bro, the bloodline. Is Matt Riddle being positioned as that guy that maybe could take the undisputed championship away from Roman Reigns? I don't know if that's how WWE sees it, 
But I do think that they are planting the seeds a little bit. And someone else that they're planting the seeds with is Cody Rhodes. On this past edition of Monday Night Raw, Cody Rhodes had a countdown clock to when he was going to appear on screen. If there were any doubts in anybody's mind when Cody Rhodes made the jump over from AEW to WWE, would he still be successful? How would they use him? Would he go back to the mid-card? Cody Rhodes is money. You don't get the countdown clock. You don't get the advertisement of, hey, Money in the Bank is coming to Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas. The Cardiff show across the, across the pond over in Wales. Cody Rhodes doing a promotional video for that as well. But the countdown clock has really is what solidified it for me that maybe it's not Riddle. Maybe it's going to be Cody Rhodes who is the one to beat Roman Reigns in his God mode streak. Hasn't been pinned in over two years, it seems like. Since the pandemic, Roman Reigns hasn't been pinned. And I do think that Cody Rhodes is being positioned as that guy who's going to take that title off of Roman Reigns. The storyline, Hell in a Cell that's coming up, the trilogy with Seth Rollins, we, it's been built up so well, comes back at WrestleMania. Surprise, Seth Rollins wasn't ready. He needed a little bit more time to prepare. WrestleMania backlash, Cody Rhodes gets over on him again. But I do think that this story has been set up so well. Cody Rhodes, Seth Rollins, Dusty's kids versus Dusty's actual son. And you get this blow up in Hell in a Cell. I do think that Cody Rhodes is going to walk out Hell in a Cell. And that's going to set him up perfectly for Money in the Bank. I don't know who else is in a better position to win at Money in the Bank. Get that briefcase. He's already walking around in million-dollar suits every time you see him. He looks the part. Give him that briefcase, and then that'll be his opportunity for whenever he wants to cash in on Roman Reigns. I don't think that WWE can write it any better. I know that people are thinking WrestleMania is going to be in Hollywood. You got Roman Reigns, his cousin The Rock, set that up in Hollywood. I think that they got a crash course and maybe go with Cody Rhodes knocking off the big dog. Hey, give me your thoughts. You can call the show 702-221-8982. Because Cody Rhodes, Roman Reigns, I do think that that is the match to make for the WWE. When we come back, we're going to have a few quick hits and a few good minutes. Don't go anywhere. This is the fight game on 1230 The Game. Welcome back to the fight game. And we're back here on the fight game with Damon Cotton on 1230 The Game. And hey, if you want to interact with me while we're doing the show here, you can follow me on Twitter or tweet at me at Damon underscore the boss. You can always give us a call at 702-221-8982. And hey, give the station a follow as well at 1230 The Game on Twitter. Got a couple of quick hits that I wanted to get to before we get out of here today. We mentioned this earlier when I had Heidi Fang on the show. Devin Haney, he's fighting June 4th for the 135 lightweight title in Australia against George Cambosis. But Devin Haney, he's got a little bit of a hiccup with his camp as he's already he's setting out today to make that trip to Australia, you know, get acclimated to the time change and, and everything that comes with it. From I mean the I think it's almost going to be maybe a twenty hour flight I, I'm not really sure on that on how long the flight is from 
here in Vegas all the way to Australia. But he's got to deal with that. But he's not going to have his father, Bill Haney, with him. His trainer, his father has watched him every step of the way. His father is not going to be able to make that trip. Denied entry to Australia due to a prior felony from the early 90s. He's hoping that he can get that cleared up before the fight because as I was talking to Devin, um, had an interview with him, wasn't able to get it on the show for you today. But when I talked to him, his father really played an integral part into his career, setting him up, setting him up from when he was 17, going down to Mexico so he could get some professional fights under his belt right out of the gate when maybe the California Boxing Commission wasn't going to license a 17-year-old to have professional fights. So I do think that that's going to be an interesting thing to watch and monitor for that fight before it comes up on June 4th. And this past weekend, Jermel Charlo, one of the Charlo twins, got the middleweight title unification bout as he beat Brian Castano in a 10th round KO. The Charlo twins, they are two of the most exciting fighters at the middleweight division. I love it with the twins where, you know, we've got one at 154, one at 160, Jermel at 154, Jermel at 160, they're never going to fight each other. And I think that's one of the things that's so interesting when you got the brothers, you've seen it with the Klitschko's and the heavyweight division as well. But maybe that could be one of the next fights for Canelo or maybe maybe trying to take out one of the one of the Charlo twins, maybe come down a little bit as we talked about this earlier with Canelo. 175, obviously not it. But I would love to see him go to try to maybe try to take on Jermel Charlo at 160 because one of the Charlo twins and Canelo, I do think that that would be big business. This past weekend with Charlo and Castano, this was a fight that it was one of Showtime's most watched fights in the past three years. So that's big business there for Showtime with the Charlo twins. My producer Jared is not with us today, but we've got to get a few good minutes with Jared. Still, even though he's not here, he's with us in spirit, and we've got to hit a few good minutes with Jared with some topics that Jared would want to talk about today. All right, when we first started this show, I said that nothing is going to be off limits on the fight game. And I meant that because now we're going to dive deep into the world of college football as we've got Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher who are involved in some serious beef between the two. The fighting is just now starting. You've got Nick Saban, the head coach of Alabama. You got Jimbo Fisher, the head coach at Texas A&M. A&M was able to defeat Alabama last season, one of their their only loss in conference play. As Alabama, they say they still went to the national championship game, lost to Georgia, but they lost to Texas A&M. And this rivalry is now building between Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher that you got Nick Saban taking some shots at Jimbo and his program at A&M. I'm going to play a little sound for you and hear Nick Saban talk about the recruiting violations or maybe not even violations, but just how NIL is affecting college football and its relationships between two coaches. You've read about them. You know who they are. I mean, we were second in recruiting last year. A&M was first. A&M bought every player on their team, made a deal for name, image, and likeness. All right, we didn't buy one player. All right, but I don't know if we're going to be able to sustain that in the future because more and more people are doing it. And that's Nick Saban talking about how A&M had the number one recruiting class, but he's saying that they bought 
their players with NIL money that Texas A&M supposedly, allegedly has an unlimited slush fund that they can just pay players however much they want. But Jimbo Fisher wasn't going to just sit back and take this quietly. Jimbo Fisher responded almost immediately to what Nick Saban said. Some people think they're God. Go dig into how God did his, his deal. You may find out about, about a guy that a lot of things you don't want to know. We built him up to be the czar of football. Go dig into his past or anybody that's ever coached with him. You can find out anything you want to find out, what he does and how he does it. And it's despicable. And I love that the Jimbo Fisher basically, hey, man, you shoot for the king, you best not miss. And Jimbo Fisher is not missing as he says, hey, man, go look into God. Maybe Alabama isn't as clean as you think they are. And that's just setting up for a very interesting college football season where you've got a fight between Nick Saban, Jimbo Fisher. Whenever A&M and Alabama play this coming season, it's going to be a fight because you've got two coaches that are basically, the gloves are coming off between both of them. They're not hiding it. It's not, hey, maybe allegedly, hey, that program over there, some of the hush-hush things that you'll hear about sometimes when it's just, you don't want to take a shot at someone. You're still trying to be professional. You don't, maybe you don't agree with what the other team, other program is doing, but you don't just outright call out names. You don't go out and just say, hey, I think that what they're doing is cheating. That's Nick Saban. He's saying that I, I don't like the way they're doing. I don't think that Alabama, may we may not be able to keep up in this landscape of college football. And I do think that that's the pot calling the kettle black that Alabama's never had to pay for a player. And Jimbo Fisher to come out and say, hey, man, maybe do some digging into God. Who made him this czar of football? He's not taking it laying down. But he also didn't deny that A&M is paying for some of their players. And it's all legal now with NIL. And NIL is just taking college sports by storm because now the quiet part is being said out loud. And I don't think that college football coaches are used to this. They, it's, they're under attack constantly because of the NIL. The quiet part is being said out loud. How much are players being paid? How much are in these NIL deals that maybe they don't want us to know about? They don't like the way that college football is changing, but I do just love the idea of two college football coaches fighting with each other. Maybe that should be, before they take the field in this coming fall, maybe just have Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban just duke it out. Because the gloves are off, like I said, but maybe they need to get in the ring and maybe put the gloves back on because they are not letting this go. This is a grudge rivalry that I want to see continued. I want to see the pettiness continue. Lane Kiffin, loudmouth of college football coaches at Ole Miss, he said this is the first time he's ever been speechless when he's been asked about it. So the fight game is extending everywhere, everyone. Because believe it or not, the fight game, it's not just in the ring. It's not just in the cage. You've got the verbal back and forth between coaches. You've got the, the cattiness that I just love to see, the pettiness that it's great. It's great for sports. It's great for someone like me who maybe I'm not, I wouldn't have cared about the relationship between Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher before this. But, hey, I'm a hell of a lot interested in it now. And before we get out of here, I do want to take a trip down memory lane as we finish up and wrap up the show. 
It's been the 20-year anniversary of the first meeting between Arturo Gotti and Irish Mickey Ward and their hellacious knockdown dragout battle that started a trilogy that made both men legends. Now, this is a fight 20 years ago, 2002, May 18th. And this is one of those fights that it birthed me to be a boxing fan. Maybe I wasn't there watching it in time in 2002, in real time. But this is one of those fights that the sport of boxing sold us. You've seen the fighter with Mickey Ward. It's just one of those things that is legendary, the fact that this trilogy lives on. I remember even playing the Fight Night video game. This was one of the marquee matchups that the video game was selling you on playing boxing, on getting involved with the sport. So I just want to tip my hat to the hellacious war. Maybe that 10th round is maybe one of the best rounds you'll ever see in a fight bar none. I don't care if it's MMA. I don't care if it's boxing. Whatever your get down is. Irish Mickey Ward, Arturo Gotti, that 10th round, May 18th, 2002, will make you a fan. It will make you a believer. And I promise you that. This has been The Fight Game with Damon Cotton on 1230 The Game. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for giving me a bit of your time and making me a part of your day. I want to say thank you to Heidi Fang from the Las Vegas Review Journal for joining me today. And Heidi breaks down the fight game like no other, whether it's behind the microphone, snapping the shots and the angles of pictures that no one else can get. Thank you so much to Heidi Fang, to my producer, Jared Justice, who was on The Men today. Get well soon. I want you back in here in the studio next week. And once again, thank you for listening to The Fight Game on 1230 The Game. I'm your host, Damon Cotton. You can follow me at Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Damon underscore the boss. Follow the station account at 1230 The Game on Twitter as well. Thank you for listening, everybody. Be safe. Protect yourself at all times.